We opened our study last week looking at the millennium in chapter 20, and we opened asking a particular set of questions, namely, what words would we use to comfort a church, to comfort believers who were actually undergoing real and severe persecution? Again, not just being made fun of or called names, but actually being afflicted and suffering and being punished for their allegiance to, to Christ, even facing maybe possibly martyrdom, what words would we offer them to encourage them to be faithful to Christ, to hold on to the end? This week I was reading the account of, of the Christian community in Jebumiangu, Nigeria, who just this past Tuesday was attacked once again by the Islamic Fulani militant group who came through their little village destroying and burning down every one of their homes, burning down their food barns and destroying all of their crops. The pleas of these Christians there uh, for the government to intervene, to protect them, to help them continue to go ignored and they continue to face this assault time and time again from this hateful militant terrorist group. What words would you use to encourage these believers in Jebumiangu, Nigeria? How would you encourage them to hold fast in the face of them being surrounded continually by all of this evil, going homeless and starving, not knowing if they're going to live from one day to the next? How would we comfort them? And it's hard for us standing here where we are, as blessed as we are in this nation, to even put ourselves in that place. But how would we comfort them? And we began to look at last week that these final chapters of Revelation actually hold forth such words of comfort and encouragement for us. It would have been to the first century Christians who were facing this kind of persecution These words would have comforted them enormously to know, all right, here's how it ends out. Here's why we can hold fast. But they have to be encouragement for us today. Like We face a whole different set of temptations and struggles and persecution. But nonetheless, these words need to encourage us to endure and to hold fast to the end. We began last week by looking at this controversial, complicated chapter that talks about a thousand-year period that doesn't exist anywhere else in the Bible. It's the only place you'll find it. We call it the millennium. We began to unpack four of the main views concerning the millennium. And I said after we did that that I want to be clear because I know in this room we have differing views and insights and interpretations of the millennium and how that colors the way we view the Bible and interpret it, that this is not a central issue to salvation, okay? What you believe in terms of when the millennium takes place isn't going to save you, okay? But while it's not central to our salvation, it is important, it does have consequences because it, it taints, it affects how you interpret God's word. How you view God's redemptive work through history, what's going to come in the end, how uh, you, you look at the social, cultural, and geopolitical issues of our day. It impacts how we go about fulfilling the Great Commission. So it does have consequence, 
but is not salvific, all right? So we can disagree as it comes to this, but we don't divide over it, amen? But I'm going to teach from a certain view, all right? So, and last week, I began to share with you why I believe the the most fitting interpretation of the millennium and how to view Revelation is what's called the amillennial view. Now, ah means no, but that's not, a, that's not exactly the best title for it. And we used a series of charts, and this is the one for the amillennial perspective here. And it, while it means no millennium, it doesn't mean that we don't believe there's a millennium. We actually believe there's a millennium. But we believe it is the present church age, that the 1,000, just like we've been looking at the other numbers in Revelation, is a symbolic number, and it's symbolic of an extended period of time, a fullness of time that encompasses the entire church age from the first coming of Christ and his ascension to his second coming. And right prior to his uh, coming is the great tribulation period, the final battle, Uh, uh, of Satan trying to amass the armies of the world to destroy the church. The Lord returns. His His church is caught up to heaven to meet him in glory in the clouds, and that ushers in the final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. All right? And that contrasted with the other views that saw the millennium taking place uh, either before this, uh, that, that came during the tribulation period and then the millennial reign of Christ, and Christ would physically reign on the earth for a thousand years as the premillennial view, or the postmillennial view that saw it in, in this period similar to the millennium, but saw a golden age during the church age where things improve, the world becomes more Christianized, and those thousand years are symbolic of that particular church age those particular views, you can hold them, you're okay, all right? Uh, But we're seeing this from a perspective here where the present church age is this symbolic millennial period found here in Scripture. And I gave uh, many reasons for that. You can go back uh, and listen to that. Now, the main point we looked at last week is the same as today because this is a continuation of the teaching on the millennium. And here's the main point. The millennium represents... The period of time of the triumph of the church in her missionary enterprise on earth and the triumph of departed saints who are already reigning with Christ in glory. Let's turn. We're going to read the first six verses of this 20th chapter of Revelation. Hear the words of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit. Great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the one thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. 
Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. These are the words of the living God. Now we began looking at answering three uh, particular questions to help us understand a little bit more of what all this means. Because there's some crazy things happening there, aren't there? You have an angel coming from heaven. You're having Satan, the great serpent, being bound with his chain and tossed in a pit and sealed. And now we're talking about these thrones in heaven and all of these things. What does all of this mean? So we looked at the first two of these three questions last week. When does the millennium occur? And what is meant by Satan being bound for 1,000 years? And the answer to that first question is, I've already given that away, right? When does the millennium occur? It's right now. It's the present church age that was inaugurated by the resurrection and ascension of Christ and concludes at his second coming. And this 1,000 years is a symbolic representation of that period of time, of the church age. 1,000 years also symbolizes three glorious truths that are expressed in the millennial period. The first of those glorious truths was this, that the millennium is the period of time during which the ultimate defeat of Satan is expressed first in a preliminary manner that anticipates his full and final defeat. We're going to see here in this passage, and we covered this last week, is that this ancient enemy of God's people called the serpent and the great red dragon, the one that stood behind all of the enemies of God and his people, the beast and the false prophet and Babylon, is ultimately destroyed. And while he is presently defeated, the full and final consummation of that will not come until that, until the end there, the final battle that we will look at next week. And so the millennium attests to his destruction in this twofold manner. Preliminary, we see that in verse 1 through 3. Satan is bound. He's bound. And then in verse 7 to 10 is the consummation of that ultimate defeat. What does it say there? That he's thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. Now, what did it mean for Satan to be bound for 1,000 years? Because if we have to look at things like now in in our world, when we uh, evaluate the stuff that's happening, would we say that Satan's bound? Because it doesn't really feel that way, does it? (laughs) There is rampant evil in the world, and it seems to be increasing to an alarming uh, rate and degree. So in what capacity is Satan bound if indeed he is bound in the present church age, and for these 1,000 years. Well, we don't have to guess why he's bound. Because verse 3 tells us specifically the purpose for which Satan is bound. He is bound, it says there, so that he cannot deceive the nations any longer. This is the specific purpose and reason for which Satan is bound. So what does that mean? He can't deceive the nations any longer. Well, it gives us an indication that any longer means that he was doing this before. Before the present church age, this is exactly what Satan was doing. And we gave a little walkthrough of biblical theology last week to show that prior to Jesus coming, prior to to the church age, God's redemptive work was relegated to a single group of people, Israel. Okay? But now, the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Satan is bound. And that's what this means. Satan being bound means that his ability to deceive the nations by persuading them to come together in a unified assault against the church of Jesus Christ to destroy her 
is severely curtailed. How do we know that to be true? Well, in verse 7 and 8, it tells us that's exactly what he does. After the 1,000-year period, he's loosed. He's loosed to do what? To deceive the nations. And how does he deceive the nation? He persuades them to assemble and to gather in a unified effort to make war against the Lamb, to destroy the church of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's how Satan's bound right now. He can't do that. He will do that one day, but at the present time, he can't do that. His ability to do that is curtailed. And for that reason, we have the second glorious truth we talked about expressed in this millennial period. That the millennium is also the period of time during which the church on earth will not fail in her missionary enterprise. She can't. It's impossible. Why? Because Satan's efforts, his ability to deceive the nations has been curtailed. It's kept on a short leash. We talked about that last week. That's what Jesus has him on a short leash. He can't go out. He can bark. He can do things. But the scope of what he can do is controlled, measured by Jesus Christ. Right? He can't go beyond that. And in the area he cannot go beyond now is to deceive the nations once again to mount a comprehensive assault against the church of Jesus Christ to stop the forward advance of the gospel. He just cannot do that. That began during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. We saw that with the 72 who were sent out. They come back marveling that the demons are subject to them in Jesus' name. And what did Jesus say? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's telling us exactly what we saw in chapter 12. Satan being cast out from heaven to the earth. Later on, he said the the prince of this world, the rule of this world has been cast out. That began in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ and it was secured fully with his death, resurrection, and ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church of Jesus Christ. So now the undeceiving of the nations has begun where they can now take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, right? That perspective, Satan is bound. He cannot destroy the church of Jesus Christ. She will fulfill her missionary enterprise. What confidence, right? The gospel cannot fail. You cannot fail going out, preaching and proclaiming the good news because everyone who is appointed to eternal life, the Lord will draw them to himself and Satan can do nothing to stop that. Praise God for that. Salvation to the nations of the earth cannot be thwarted. The Great Commission will be accomplished. Isn't that good news? We don't have any other certainty in life, but we have this one right here. What Jesus commissioned his church to do will be met with 100% success. All right? So that's a glorious truth there. And that now brings us to our third glorious truth we see expressed in the millennial period. We're going to focus today now on verses 4 through 6. And this is the third glorious truth. The millennium is the period of time in which the church in heaven will experience in an intermediate fashion her ultimate victory of reigning with Christ. I'll say that one more time. The millennium is the period of time in which the church in heaven will experience in an intermediate fashion her ultimate victory of reigning with Christ. What happens here? Now, John has this vision of Satan being bound, but then he sees something else. Something else is happening in a 1,000-year period, a millennial 
period. In other words, there's something more to the millennial period than a bound Satan and a missionary church. Another 1,000-year period. He sees that there in verse 4, right? Where he sees now thrones in heaven. And he says that he sees these seated on there. And he gives us a a definition of who they are and who he sees. But he says, therefore, a 1,000 years. These two distinct visions reveal things that characterize a millennial period, 1,000 years. We're going to see here that they both share the same period of 1,000 years. It's not 1,000 years of this, then 1,000 years of this. These are overlapping. They are happening concurrently, and they reveal things that characterize the millennium. Both have to do with the church. The first with the church on earth and her missionary enterprise, and now with the church in heaven, looking at departed saints who, who... Go on to glory, whether they are martyred or whether they die being in the Lord. What happens to them during this church age, this present age, prior to the second coming of the Lord? So this second vision here has to do with the church in heaven. So the third main question we're seeking to answer is to answer, what does it mean for the saints to come to life and reign with Christ for 1,000 years? This is what John sees in this vision. These are those that have came to life and now reign with Christ for this millennial period. And to fully come to answer that, there's more questions we got to answer, right? We have to understand what's kind of taking place here. And there are three other questions we're going to address here. Where does this expression of the millennium take place? In other words, what's the location of it? Where is this happening? Who participates in reigning with Christ during the millennium? And what characterizes this particular millennial reign? So where does this expression of the millennium and this millennial reign take place? It's in heaven. Let's see why. Verse 1 opens with what? I saw thrones. This isn't the first time we see thrones in Revelation. All right? Over and over again, we have seen this reference to thrones, John seeing thrones, Uh, In heaven, different aspects of it. 47 times in Revelation, John sees a throne or thrones. And with the exception of two of those times, it's always depicted of these thrones being in heaven. The other two times mentioned uh, was in chapter 2, where he talks about Satan's throne, right? The imagery of that being in a localized place. Uh, in addressing one of the churches of uh, the seven churches. And then in chapter 16, where it refers to the plague that was poured out on the throne of the beast. But every other time thrones are mentioned there, they're always as part of a heavenly vision, a heavenly scenes. Uh, We saw that in 4.2. This is the first time where we see John says that he saw a door uh, open in heaven. And what does he see? He sees a throne and one seated upon the throne. Then he also sees 24 elders that represent both the Old Testament and New Testament saints of God. Where are they seated on? They're also seated on thrones. And where are those thrones? They're in heaven, right? They're in heaven, okay? So that's our first clue. Over and over, again, these images of thrones are in the heavenly realm. A second clue to the location of this millennium and why it's in heaven is also found there in verse 4. John says that he sees not just the the thrones and those seated on it, but he sees the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for 
the word of God. He doesn't see bodies. He sees souls. Disembodied souls. Where have we seen that before? You recall back? All the way back. Now this this goes back to chapter 6. right? With the opening of the fifth seal, John sees the souls of the martyrs under the altar. And where was that altar? In heaven. In heaven. right? He's referring to the same thing here. In fact, similar language is used regarding to that. And there in chapter 6, it refers to those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Same thing here. The souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. These martyred souls are in heaven. The point of death, they've been translated to heaven. These are not Christians now receiving their physical glorified, resurrected bodies reigning with Christ because this millennial period is during the present church age. The full physical resurrection is going to be at the return of our Lord, and I'll show you that in just a few moments. This millennial period takes place in heaven, not on earth, but at the same time as the millennial period referenced in verses 1 through 3. Now, if you hold to the dispensational premillennial view Uh, This is supposed to be the period of time where saints are reigning on earth. They are the ones whom Jesus returns. They receive their physical bodies. And now they're presently reigning with Christ physically here on earth during this 1,000 year period in their glorified physical bodies. The challenge here is this text says nothing of that. It's not a physical resurrection in view. We're going to see more of that here in a moment. Nor do we see some of the other elements that that particular millennial view holds happens during this time. Do you see any reference here or any terminology in this text about a rebuilt temple on earth? Or about a reinstituted sacrifice system or Levitical priesthood reinstated during a 1,000 year period? None of that's mentioned here at all. We have to do great gymnastics with Scripture here to shoehorn apocalyptic symbols from Daniel into this here and Ezekiel to try to make it fit. But this text isn't using those particular symbols for us to see what's happening in this millennial reign period here. Right? This is not happening on earth. This is happening in heaven. Here's the third clue of the location of this millennial period. It says here that they came alive and reigned with Christ. In Revelation, thus far, where is the place from which the Lamb is said to be presently exercising His reign? Is it on earth? Up to this point? It's all been in the heavenly scenes. This is where all of this is taking place. Back in chapter 5, John sees a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne, right? And, and then all of a sudden it's like, who's worthy to open the scroll, to take the scroll and open the seals, right? And, and then it, that John's just, just perplexed and he's anxious about who's going to be able to open that, right? Those are the eternal decrees of God concerning salvation and judgment. And one of the elders turns to him and says, hey, don't worry about it. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's worthy. 
And John looks, but he doesn't see a lion. Who does he see? The lamb standing as slain before the throne of God. He is the one worthy to take the scroll and break open its seals. Where's the lamb? He's in heaven. He's in heaven. From there, he's exercising his reign. We see again in chapter 7, the great multitude of saints from every nation, tribe, and language, and tongue in heaven, worshiping. And it says that they're doing that where? Before the throne of God and before the Lamb. They're in heaven. They're in heaven. In all of these heavenly visions, this is where the Lamb is seen. Chapter 12, again, this great symbolic imagery here uh, of where we're taking back to this, to this time where the dragon is seen as standing before the woman who is about to give birth, right? And what's he there to do? He's waiting to devour the male child that's about to be born, right? That's the, that's the Messiah, the messianic seed that was promised. But he's not able to do that because she gives birth. And then we're told that the male child is caught up to God and to his throne. What happens there? He's ascended to heaven. Millennial reign takes place in heaven. I want you to see that. That's what's happening here. Now, who participates in reigning with Christ during the millennium? Two categories of believers are mentioned here. All right? They're presented to us. The first category is martyrs, those who are killed for their faith. Specifically, he says those who are beheaded for their testimony of Jesus. Now, is only those who are killed by beheading going to be there? No, right? That was the customary means of execution. You know, the first century believers, that's what they would have seen. Their brothers and sisters in the Lord dragged away and, and be decapitated, right? So just, just contextual for those believers. But we know Christians have been killed in a variety of ways throughout the centuries here. So it includes all saints who are killed for their faithful testimony of Jesus Christ. But he also says that there's a second category, and that is what we'll call overcomers, ones who conquer to the end. Because it says, and those, so this is a distinct classification. Some of your translations kind of connect these as being the same category, but they're not. It's and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. What does this have in view? This has in view every Christian who has not compromised. Every Christian who has not caved into the pressure of the pagan culture and the idolatrous, uh, idolatrous culture and has maintained their fidelity to Jesus Christ. They maintain their allegiance to Jesus unto death. All right? And that's what's in view here. The manner of death is not what is important. Faithfulness to Christ unto death is what counts. Whether one's life is cut short in martyrdom because they stood strong to the, to, to the point where they were killed or one dies in the comfort of their bed, peacefully passing in their sleep, but they've remained faithful unto death. Both are represented here during this millennial reign. Isn't that awesome? This just gives us an insight, and we're going to talk about this more in a moment, what happens to believers who die during this time? What takes place? We call this period of time here that characterizes the millennium the intermediate state, okay? And so we know where this is taking place. We know who is part of this millennial period. Now, what characterizes this reign? The first thing we can look at here is that phrase, coming to life. They came to life. Now, again, 
This is not the physical resurrection from the dead. We'll address that phrase, the first resurrection, here in a moment. What John sees here is not a physical resurrection, but a spiritual one. These are disembodied souls in heaven, all right? They're not reigning here on earth. They're reigning in heaven. What happens to our loved ones who die in Christ? I think, like it was in the first century, it's a question I think we all have today and have all wondered about. The first century, believers would have wondered, well, you know, these saints that were killed for their testimony of Jesus, what happens? They, they've been persecuted by the, the cruel Roman uh, uh, rulers and, and, and the, the imperial cult ministers and all of these things were happening to them and they were seeing their, their, their loved ones beheaded. What happens to them? What, we, we bury their bodies in the ground. Where, where do they go? Do they go to like in some suspended animation, some deep cryogenic sleep? What happens to them when they're in the ground, when we bury them during this particular period? Prior to Jesus coming back again, we see scripture that tells us at his return we'll be physically raised from the dead with our glorified bodies to be with Christ forever. But what about now? What about this period? Well, this vision of the millennial reign of the saints answers that question definitively. Because John is in essence saying this to these Christians who no doubt were concerned and were asking this question and were wondering about it. He's like, let me show you what happens to faithful Christians. Those who've refused to compromise. Those who've held fast to their allegiance to Christ and paid with their lives. They are seated on thrones in the heavenly places in glory, reigning with Christ. That's where they are. You want to know what happens to them? They're reigning with Christ right now. I don't know if we've ever thought about this. I don't know if we've given much thought to this, this glorious uh, reality that's being expressed to us here. And at the end of verse 5, it says, this is the first resurrection. And I want you to know that and I'm going to address this. The beginning of chapter uh, verse 5 there is parenthetical. Some older translations actually render this in a way that you understand. There's a parenthesis where John is trying to contrast something. But that phrase, this is the first resurrection, rightly comes after grammatically to understand at the end of verse 4. Okay, So we'll see that here in a moment. But that phrase, the first resurrection, is a spiritual resurrection. It's the intermediate state. We're with the Lord, but we don't have the full consummation of what's to come for us in the first, in the final resurrection, the physical resurrection from the dead that is our hope and has been promised to us. There are not multiple physical resurrections. Scripture has in view one physical resurrection. So this view that the departed saints and those who are alive at the second coming begin their 1,000-year earthly reign with Christ in a physical, glorified, resurrected body while unbelievers roam the earth. And then there's going to be a final battle where there'll be more death and more enemies of God and, and, and they're all going to be killed. And then final judgment doesn't square with what Paul says about the resurrection. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 51 through 55. Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Now, sleep just means death, right? We'll not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? What's he saying that's happening here? At the return of Christ, we're going to be changed. We're going to be transformed, right? This is what's in view here. Whether we are dead in Christ at the time of his coming, we've, right? We've, we've already passed, or we're alive at the time of his coming, we will be clothed with immortality and death is fully and finally defeated. Then, at his return is when that happens. We'll all be changed. But if there's still another thousand years after that time frame, then death really hasn't been conquered or destroyed. Paul got this wrong. Paul got this wrong. Let me give you another passage here. Paul is addressing a question to the believers at Thessalonica uh, because this question's on their mind about what happens to those who die in the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I do, uh, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who, again, who have died, who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, again, the prototype of our resurrection is Christ's resurrection, Right? Those that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, right? So it's not like they're just, they died before Christ could return, so, oh, too bad for them. No, Paul's saying that's not what's going to happen here at all, right? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, right? A shout with the voice of an archangel. And here it is again, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. All right, there's your rapture, okay? Not seven years before at his coming, all right? This is the rapture. To meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Then he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. One physical resurrection is going to take place at his coming. The cry of command, the shout of the archangel, the trumpet blow of God. Christ returns. (laughs) We are resurrected, right? The dead are resurrected. We are alive, are caught up with him. And when we get some, we get a new glorified body slapped onto us. And praise God, we'll reign with him forever. Isn't that awesome? That happens at his second coming, all right? But until then, here's what's happening to the saints who have been killed or who died and have been faithful to Jesus unto the end. They're in heaven. They're reigning with Christ. They ain't sleeping. They're not in stasis in a little, you know, pod waiting to be wakened up. They're fully conscious in the presence of God, reigning with Christ. We'll describe that more in a second. Now, again, parenthetically here, at the, and there at verse 5, it says something about those who, doesn't, who don't come to life, right? The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Well, who's the rest of the dead? Who are the rest of the dead? If Dead believers are the ones who are reigning with the saints. Who are the rest of the dead? Well, here's why it's parenthetical. There's a contrast being drawn here. The rest of the dead are the opposite of what we just see there. 
They're the ones who actually worship the beast and took the mark of the beast, right? These are unbelievers, those who even persecuted the saints of God or killed the saints of God. They don't come to life during this church age, during this millennial period, to reign with Christ like the departed saints. That doesn't happen to them. There's no spiritual resurrection for them, okay? They don't come to life. Unbelievers who died will not be made to live with Christ during this millennial age, nor will they ever be made to live with Christ and reign with Him. For these who have died apart from Christ, they are already experiencing in a preliminary and intermediate fashion the unending torment called the second death, which we'll see in a moment. So what else characterizes this millennial reign other than coming to life? It's that statement and that phrase, reigning with Christ. I want you to recall some of the promises that Jesus made to the churches, those seven churches that we studied way, way back a long time ago, right? At the end, he'd say, to those who overcome, and then he makes a promise, doesn't he? I want you to see how those promises come to life here and apply many of those to this millennial period. Revelation 2.10, he tells the church there, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And then in Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This isn't talking about a period of time in the new heavens and the new earth. It's those who conquer to the end, whether they are killed or they pass on into glory, being faithful until the very end. These promises are for them. And these departed saints in heaven right now are receiving these promises, the crown of life, sitting on the throne with Christ. It's an intermediate fashion. It's not in its fullest expression But it's a far better one than we've got here on earth, isn't it? They've begun to receive their reward already. Death means, for the believer, reigning with Christ. Hallelujah. So what does it mean? What does it mean to sit on a throne? Is it a literal throne? Is it a literal throne? No, of course, it's not a literal throne. Some of you are already like, man, I'm going to have a nice... Maybe you're envisioning the Game of Thrones throne, right? With swords and all of that. I don't know what you're picturing with the throne, but it's not a literal throne. A throne is a symbol of authority and rule, right? Of sovereignty and all of those things that we see in reference to God in His throne, but also the other thrones uh, mentioned in Revelation. This is symbolic, right? But it means that departed saints in this intermediate state have already begun to exercise some measure of what that reigning with Christ is means. In verse 4, he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. What does that mean? The authority to judge was committed. There's a callback here to Daniel's vision in the seventh chapter of Daniel that refers to the saints being vindicated by God. In in, in 722, talks about the saints uh, having judgment was given for them by the ancient of days who sat on the throne. Judgment was given for them, or judgment was passed for them. In other words, God vindicated the saints. 
That's what it means to pass judgment for them, right? Uh, on the earth, the beast, right, persecutes the saints of God, destroys them. The, the beast and, and, and his agents, right, uh, pass judgment on the saints as guilty and worthy of death. And then this is reversed, right, by the Lord. They're in heaven now reigning with him. God passes judgment and declares now a judgment upon those who persecuted the saints of God. There's a reversal in view here as well. But what John is saying here also is that these saints are presently reigning with Christ in some capacity where they are judging as well. Now, they're not executing judgment because the execution of judgment belongs to the Lamb and only to the Lamb. But in some sense, saints are involved in judgment. Revelation chapter 2, 26 through 27. Again, another promise of the Lord to the church. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end... To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. That's the Messianic Psalm 2, their fulfillment of of Christ there. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. What's going on there? Will give authority over the nations? What does that look like? How? How? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's rebuking the believers at Corinth. They weren't handling disputes amongst themselves in a very godly fashion. Christians were suing Christians. And and now Paul rebukes them here. He says in in verses 1 through 3 of 1 Corinthians 6, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Listen, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Life. Have you ever thought about that? I bet we read right through this sometimes and go, I don't understand. You're going to judge angels? You're going to judge the world? You're going to have authority over nations? What on earth does that look like? What does that look like? I don't know. I don't know, but think about this. Your sweet little grandma who baked cookies and prayed for you and read Bible stories to you and and now has passed on into glory. One day, she's going to be having authority over the nations and judging angels in the world. That's crazy. And so are you. And so are you. I hope that gives you a little more purpose in life to think about this. It's, it's, it's recovering the dominion mandate. Right? The saints recover this, right? We're, we're, we're God's vice regents here on the earth. We were meant to be kings and queens here on the earth to rule over it, to exercise dominion over it, right? That was lost and broken in the fall. And now what we're seeing something here, this is completely reversed. And now we are judging the nations and judging the world in some fashion. I don't know how, but you and I are going to be incorporated in a final judgment somehow. Not in the execution of it, but more than likely to affirm and attest to it. By our very presence, right? We will do those, these things, right? Uh, and we're going to rule somehow during the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. So that's awesome. That's amazing. 
That puts some things in perspective, right? Because we, we live this life as if eternity doesn't really matter. We make decisions in this life as it's inconsequential to eternity. But this says here, whether you're a homemaker, whether you're a mechanic, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a student, a mom or dad, whatever you are, rich or poor, from the least to the greatest, we're all going to one day experience this kind of reality, this glorious truth that is just summarily introduced here in the millennial period that we are going to reign with Christ and have authority to judge. How? Who knows? I don't think we can even begin to imagine what that's like. Maybe we're ruling planets. I have no idea. We'd just be speculating. The scripture doesn't give us anything more on this, but it states that we're going to be doing some ruling, some reigning, some judging, and exercising authority. And that's good enough for me. Third thing we can see here that characterizes this millennial reign is eternal security. And this, this is expressed as one of the benedictions found in Revelation. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. All right, so we're getting this first resurrection and second death. Well, what's the first death? Is there a second resurrection? This is apocalyptic language, and I don't want us to get into the weeds with all of this here. All right? But as to the second death, we have the answer to that in verse 14. Revelation twenty fourteen. in the final judgment, it says this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We're told what the second death is. It is that final punishment of unending torment in the lake of fire. Right? That second death encompasses the spiritual death of unbelievers as they experience that unending torment. But for those who are reigning with Christ in heaven during the millennium, at the end of the millennium, nothing changes. There's no change in their state. They remain as they are, reigning with Christ, right? They've been made to live with Christ and reign with Christ during this age, and they will never die later in the lake of fire. They won't taste of it. Again, Jesus promises that to those who conquer in Revelation 2.11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Praise God for that. There's no going You know, you're not dying and there's no purgatory and there's none of that stuff. You die and you're with Christ and you're reigning with Christ and nothing is going to interrupt that. Nothing at all. You'll be with him forever and ever. And lastly, last thing I want to say here that characterizes this millennial reign is unending intimacy with Christ. Look what he says at the end of that benediction. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. They'll reign with him for a thousand years. They'll be priests of God and of Christ. Think about the tabernacle. Think about the temple. Who could draw closer to God? Who could draw closer to God more than a normal person could? The priests, right? While everyone else had to stand afar off and outside, who could draw closer to God? It was the priests of God, those who worshiped God, those who served God, they could do that. 
And right at the beginning of Revelation, that is what we're told Jesus makes of his people. He says in in Revelation 1, he's made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. When you die and are in the glories of heaven, the greatest thing that you'll experience is not that you've been made alive. It's not that you've been vindicated. It's not that you have authority to judge. It's not that your eternal security is assured. It's that you and I will get to be face to face with God, beholding Him in the glories of heaven forever, worshiping Him, having a relational intimacy with Him like we can never experience before. What a beautiful thing we see here. We'll be priests to our God. This is what Jesus promised to the church. Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Brothers and sisters. This is so amazing here. We'll get to be with him in this kind of intimacy, in relationship, in his presence without any fear of ever having been being driven away by anything. We'll be pillars in the temple of God. Can you move a pillar? A pillar in his temple. Unmovable. In his presence forever and ever and ever. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear because death means coming to life and reigning with Christ. Why do we fear death so much? I know death is hard. I, I, I know it's difficult. Man, when we're confronted with it, with the loss of a loved one, it's, it's loss, it's pain. It's a reflection of the continued brokenness of this world before us. That, 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 that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And it's hard. Why do we fear it? Why? We do everything we can to delay the inevitability, you know, of tribulation, of suffering and death. That's why we're like, well, well, we want to escape. I hope that rapture is before the tribulation because I don't want to go through it. We want to escape it. Or we work hard, we labor and toil to make this some kind of paradise on earth. Like somehow we're going to we're going to make this better and like a return to the garden. We're not going to experience that on this side of glory. And we do that, you know, to try to mask the hideous reality of of the brokenness of this sin-ridden world. But the reality that we're presented with in Revelation continually is like the church is going to be assailed and assaulted here on the earth. She will be persecuted, but she will fulfill her mission. And at the appointed time, the Lord is going to return and all of this will be made new again. But for now, this is what we've got. For now, we enter into the same experience that everyone on this planet does. We all die. But we don't need to fear it. For the Christian, death means life. Do you believe that? Right? And once you come fully alive, you will never die again. That's the promise held forth for us here. But who is this for? Who are those who are made fully alive? It's only those who've trusted Christ. The faith that will sustain you to the end, which is what Revelation is continuing to exhort believers to, is not one that relies on this simple little sinner's prayer they prayed sometime long ago when they walked an altar at a tent revival, a camp meeting, or a church service. That's not going to help you. 
The faith that sustains us to endure to the end is one whose hope is unwaveringly in Christ Jesus. One whose hope is anchored in this reality that death is triumph for the believer. Otherwise, we won't hold fast, brothers and sisters. When it gets hot, we're going we're gonna to be looking for the exit. Get me off this thing. But if our hope is Christ, if we understand that we'll reign with Christ, if we understand that death is life for the believer, that's our ultimate triumph. Death is the escape from this world, but it's to our ultimate triumph and victory and glory. Then we will face whatever comes our way. We'll endure whatever hardship there might be, whatever suffering, you know, is, 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 tossed, is thrown against us. We will hold fast. What if we began to live our lives now as if the things we've just spoken about are true? What would be different about our lives? What if these three glorious truths expressed in the millennial period are to be the engine of hope and perseverance? I believe they are. I believe the Lord wanted to show us in these visions he gave John that were then passed on to the churches here to see that, hey, Satan's going to be bound. And that's just a preliminary reality of what's coming his way. He's going to be ultimately defeated. You understand why eternity is going to be awesome too? There's no Satan. There's no evil. There's going to be any temptation to sin. And then he says, but guess what? Also, the other reality is here, while you're here on earth, you're not going to fail. The church will succeed. The gospel will go forth. The nations will be saved. And then thirdly, we see this incredible triumph of the departed saints who die during this millennial period. They are presently reigning with Christ. And in some way, you and I here that are still on earth are also reigning with Christ. Why the apostles declared, hey, we are right now presently seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's your reality. You are presently sitting on a throne with Christ right now. But we don't live our lives that way as if we truly are. We get caught up in the muck and the mire and the filth and the sin of this world and we forget That we're reigning with Christ. We are heirs with Christ in glory right now. What if we lived as if all of these things were true? What if we so believed these things that we would give all of our time, our energy, our resources, our money, our efforts, our families, our very lives to the advancement of the gospel? What if... But if you knew that there were no sacrifices that you would make in this life for Christ that won't be infinitely outshone and outstripped by the glories of the millennium and the world to come. What if? What would it look like? It's what I want you to think about for yourself. What would this look like if we believed this to be true? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, 
but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years.